This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. So what I'm going to be doing for uh, the next several minutes is uh, introducing you to what I call the Kingdom Seminar. This is a uh, three-part seminar that I put together some years ago that I've been given to churches around the country, trying to give some explanation as to what is happening in our nation and to what we have to do to change uh, from the direction that our nation is in. The Kingdom Seminar consists of three different uh, presentations. Uh, the first one is what I call an overview of biblical history. Uh, I hope you can see that pretty well, if you have good eyes. Um, this is a look at the 10,000-year history of the world. We hold to, as you folks do, a young earth view of creation. Uh, not all Christians are with us on that. There are Christians who believe in an old earth, you know, four-plus billion-year-old uh, understanding of creation. That's, that's not us. Uh, so I call this the amazing story because we present in it uh, the amazing things that God has done in the creation of his world and the history of mankind. The second of the three is overview of America's history, which I entitled The Forgotten Story, a 400-year look at America as we know America from its founding. And the third is called an overview of youth worldview, youth meaning high school and college. And I call this a troubling story because of what's happened to education in America over the last several decades. So for this, uh, my being at your church and working with Pastor Asher, uh, he asked that I would do the first and the third. And that's what I'll be doing. I'll be doing the first one, overview of biblical history. And then tonight at 6, come back and do the uh, overview of youth worldview, which I highly encourage you to attend and bring others because this is telling the story of what's happening through education that has taken us off track with our young people especially. It's really a very important message for uh, this time in which we live. And then I'm going to also be visiting with Pastor Asher uh, if things uh, have been received well, a way that we could come back and do the second presentation uh, and some other things related to that. So the purpose of the Kingdom Seminar, uh, we say these things. It gives an understanding of the worldview shift in our nation. When I talk about the term worldview, we'll give some explanation to that, but meaning the basic outlook and the way we think things are supposed to work. Why have we shifted from what's known as a Judeo-Christian worldview that came to the shores of America to today where it's largely a secular worldview. That's the way our nation is running today, is on a secular worldview. Not, in, not within the four walls of our church, but out there. Out there in the public square, public institutions, the Judeo-Christian worldview is gone. And it's been gone for a number of years. It began leaving 100 years ago for particular reasons, which I'll show you. And so this message is designed to help us understand where we were, why we have lost that, 
and why the mess we have today and what it's going to take to get it back. We'll give the root cause for the loss of our Judeo-Christian worldview. We'll look at the consequences of the loss of that. And most importantly, what will be the path forward? So I'm going to be arguing, along with my associate, Max Lyons, who has joined us and will be uh, with us this session and the, and the final session. I'm going to be arguing that the path forward to correct what has happened and to get back to the America that God had designed for this land by bringing the Puritans and the pilgrims here will only happen through bringing God's word accurately through two institutions. Those two institutions, if they do not lead with instruction in God's word, we're heading into a long-term dark age in this land. And those two institutions are simply the local church and the schoolhouse. And we come from the position that the schoolhouse for Christians needs to be our schoolhouse. There was a time way back when that's the way it was. When the Christians had the schoolhouse in many cases and for a long time it was homeschooling with the help of tutors who were Christians, the help of the church. And then in part of America's story, which I'll be showing you, we transitioned to a government-run school system that is not controlled by the church, not controlled by the word of God. And so we're arguing that we really have to confess that today, what's happening in America, the church has to revisit the very idea of education. There's just no other way that I can put this. And I know it's a very problematic issue. I get that. I understand that fully of how uh, we as Christians are so embedded with the school system. I get all of that. I'm just simply saying this is not the way education is supposed to work. I'll just say this briefly and then come back to that later. But education as a sphere is not a responsibility of government. It's not in our Constitution. It's not in our Bible. It's just what's happened into America over the last several decades for all kinds of reasons. And we are simply going to have to rethink that matter. And I know that just lots of people just kind of get queasy about that. What does that really mean? So we'll try to address some of that as we move forward. Worldview, the matter of thoughts. So I'm continuing a bit with what I gave in the message this morning with these same verses, Isaiah 55, 8, about our thoughts not being his thoughts, 2 Corinthians 10, 5, the importance of uh, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, Colossians 2, 8. Beware, beware, Paul says. Don't let yourselves be taken to a hostile worldview. And that important verse from Proverbs 23, 7, for as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. So to do this kingdom seminar, uh, this first session, History of God and Man, The Amazing Story. What I'm going to do is go through a chart. And this chart is available on our website, nehemiahinstitute.com. So what I'm presenting, you can see and pull down that chart from the website with notes that will be very similar to what I'm giving you here, so you don't have to take notes. Please do if you want to. But we're going to cover these four things. 
some talk about eternity slash time. What does eternity mean? What does time mean? We're going to look at the key eras in human history. And we'll talk about the key works of God in those key eras. And we'll talk about the key individuals, key individuals whom God used to bring about his uh, work that he was doing in human history. So to do this, we start with a chart that looks like this. It had a beginning, creation, as we Christians understand and believe in. And then one day there will be a consummation. This is the timeline of total human history. And again, we hold to the young earth position on creation so that God created the world somewhere between six and 10,000 years ago from now. There's one other C word that we have to have on this timeline, and that is simply the cross, because the cross is everything. If you take away the cross, there's no Christian faith, period. It's all central to the cross, the resurrection of Christ from when he died on the cross, the resurrection, that what was accomplished on the cross of his paying the price for the sins of his people is central to the entire Christian faith. Paul put it this way, for I deliver unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Paul says, this is what I first received, probably when you know, God captured him on his way to Damascus and began the process of uh, reorienting Paul's life. He says, this is the first thing I was told. Christ died for our sins. So the cross became paramount to Paul's work. Uh, Isaiah 55, 53, 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. It's again a reference to cross. Uh, so we'll just leave it at that. So then I want to talk about time measurements. This is important. You might wonder why would we have to study time in a Christian worldview understanding. The reason I do this, walking through this history, because I say this is the big picture of God's world. It's the big picture of what God has done in history. And if we don't get the big picture right, we will surely get the little pictures all messed up, which I believe we have in no small number of ways. So we're going to talk about the things that God put in place to make his world work. And when we don't understand that, when we don't honor that, the wheels come off, which is what's happened in America. Time measurements. We have different ways of measuring time. We have what we call the year. So, silly question, what is the year? Well, of course this, the earth around the sun. Okay, a year. Then we have a month. What's the month? Well, it's simply the moon around the earth. Approximately once a month, that's what we refer to as a time of month. Then we have the day. What is the day? The day is simply the earth rotating on its axis. So we have year, month, and day, all planetary motion defined. Now this is of God. God laid this out. He gave it to us in the scriptures. This is the way time marches on, is by these measurements. But there's one more important time measurement that I have not yet shown that is used everywhere but is not planetary motion defined. Care to guess what that time period is? The week, of course. 
So what is the week? If it's not planetary motion, define what is it? Well, it's simply seven days named week by God. He said six days this, one day that, this is a week. The whole world uses the week, and most of the world has no idea where it came from. Isn't that an amazing thing? That they follow the week, don't know that it was of God, don't believe in God, creation, and yet they do this. Do you know that cultures for generations have experimented with different lengths of the week? Everything from four days to ten days have been tried. They all come back to seven. Why? Because it just works. It's what's sown into our being. Six days of rest, a day of worship. We've kind of messed that up now in America too. And that's what is happening when we leave what we'll call a Christian worldview. So this is time measurements. So then I'd like to ask, how were years tracked in Old Testament days? You know, we have a way of saying 1943, 2002. What did they do in the Old Testament? They didn't have letters that were dated 534 B.C. Why? They had no concept of what B.C. would mean. So they had to have a different way of counting years. And guess what they did? They always marked years by how long a king had been in office. Every time they get a new king, the calendar would start over. So you, also, you find these kind of statements in scripture, the fifth year of so-and-so, the 18th year of so-and-so. That was the way time was marked. You find this throughout scripture. A new king, there were 43 kings in Israel's history. Most of them were very bad. A few of them were declared good. But that's always the way it was. In the year of so-and-so, something happened. That's just the way time was kept. Well, guess what? Nothing has changed. Because here, today, we are in the 2021st year of King Jesus. Now, we don't think that way. We don't say it that way. But that's what it is. 2021 is 2021 years since the birth of Christ. You know, there's a little bit of a two or three year issue of when things really were started to be counted. But that's what it meant. So we say today... 2021 A.D., Anno Domini, meaning year of the Lord. That's what the phrase means, or we would say the year of a king. So here we are, still measuring time by the year of the king. But again, the world doesn't pay attention to that. It's just gone from our thinking. So now we're going to look at this chart. And uh, this is the way it starts out. Eternity, time is a parenthesis in eternity. Time is a construct of God itself. There wasn't such a thing as time. Usually when I get out to speak to schools, which I like to do and do often, I like to ask the students this question. So I'll ask you young men in front. Why did God wait until he did to create? What was he doing? All those years before he decided to create. Well, guess what? There were no years. Because years is a part of the construct of creation when things were put in motion. So there wasn't such a thing as time marching on. God, Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they weren't doing something else for a long, long, long time 
And then one day decided, let's do something. Let's create something. There was no time. It was just, it's just an eternal present. That's pretty hard for us to comprehend. And that's the way it's going to be again sometime with the return of Christ, the wrapping up of history, of consummation of history as we know that. That's the way it's going to be. And then we don't know how long that is. So I have a question mark there. You know, towards the right, we, we don't know how much longer this is going to run on. And as I alluded to earlier, the church has kind of fought over this for 2,000 years. You know, when is time going to end? Uh, everything from next week to who knows. I mean, that's, that's the reality. Uh, I, I just, you know that. There's different views about when this thing is going to end. But regardless of when it is going to end, what are we supposed to be doing in the meantime? We're supposed to be busy. We're supposed to be occupying until he comes. We're supposed to be building, advancing the kingdom of Christ, and let whatever is going to happen, happen, right? So let's be about the business of doing God's work. That's what we're told to do in the Great Commission and elsewhere. That's our command to us. So this is just the way we picture how to think about the big picture in a sense of time is marching on, God's in control, and various things have happened. So second with that, now we're going to look at key eras of time. There are four key eras in human history. Christian and non-Christian philosophers alike hold to this view. So this is not chapter and verse stuff. It's just what's been recognized throughout world history as different key eras of time and what's been happening in those. So the first is, as you see and marked out here, four different eras. The first one is known as ancient history. Scholars, educators refer to ancient history from about 3300 BC to 476 AD. Something happened in that year that changed from one era to another era. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, 3300 BC, why that? Well, that's proclaimed to be about when there we still have the oldest written manuscripts that were written in some language to say what was going on. Talk about people, events, so forth. So supposedly, that's what's there. Of course, there was history before that, but we don't have the written documents of things that were going on, uh, other than the scriptures, which were inspired to tell us about that. But as far as paper documents that were produced in that time, that's not in existence. 476 AD, what happened then? By the way, this is a class you're free to talk. I'm going to ask questions. Uh, what happened in 476 A.D.? Fall of the Roman Empire. Exactly right. That was an enormous event. The Roman Empire collapsed. Uh, it had been collapsing. It was sick. It was decaying. And finally, it collapsed in that year. And the city of Rome went from about a million-plus people to 100,000 people in a matter of months, a few years. It was just a huge, huge event. Uh, the corruption, the, the wickedness in Rome, and it just came to an end, as all things do that try to have a life built around something other than God's holy word. The second era, key era, is known as the medieval era, about a thousand year reign, 476 AD to 1492. Now you all better know what 1492 is about. Columbus sailed, ocean blue. <laughs> 1492, 
So a thousand years there, that we call it the medieval period. We'll talk more about that. The third era is known as the modern era, or modernity is a word that philosophers use, the modernity, 1492 to the 1960s. This was the modern age. It's when science came into a, to a maturity, and uh, scientists could explain everything. Scientists could give us the truth about the way things work, why they work that way. So we kind of adopted a mechanistic view of everything. You could test it in a lab. Uh, the guys in white coats uh, had formulas on blackboards and could explain everything. So that was what was called modernity, the period of, of, a, of, a, of a world that was defined strictly by formulas, mathematics, physics, and so forth. Well, what in the world happened in the 60s that would mark a new era, the end of one and the beginning of another? You know today, with so many things that are going wrong, we're very prone to say it happened in the 60s. Something got in our water in the 60s, and the wheels just came off of culture. I graduated from high school in 1960, and it was just at the time when a lot of things were getting pretty crazy. You know, the whole, I just won't use some words that would describe, you know what I'm saying. It went bad, okay? It went south. And um, uh, there was a whole anti-authority movement of young people, um, big problems on campuses, and uh, it went bad from there, okay? So uh, we marked the 60s as, as critical. But of course, what happened in the 60s is because of what was happening in the 50s and what was happening in the 40s. It's all a continuum of how much we are thinking God's thoughts or not. But sooner or later, big things happen, and you say, wow, it's a whole new world. And that kind of happened in the 60s. So the last era, from the 60s on, uh, we don't know what to call it yet. So we simply say postmodern. Maybe 50 years from now, the philosophers will come up with a new name and say it was that era, and it'll have a fancy 50-cent word name. But right now, we're just in the post-modern, meaning after. We're post-after. After the modernity age, we're on to something else, whatever it might be. We don't know what to call it yet. So those were and are the four key eras of history, at least as the world pretty much identifies them. That's pretty universal. We agree on this much of a, of a look at history, that there was this things happening, different change in, in ideas and whatnot. So then we're going to look, uh, and I'm using 4400 BC, that's probably the most literal dating of, from scripture about when things begin. And we're gonna go forward with this. So I wanna show you, so you watch closely on the screen what happens, that starting with the flood, something big happened every 500 years. Almost to the year, Within a few years, certainly within a few decades, something big happened. So I'm going to show you what those things were. The very big things that happened when God would step down and remind the world whose world it is. And he did some big things. So we're going to look at all of them. 
nine different big things and 15 key people that God used in those big things where God would say through all kinds of really significant demonstrations, this is my world. This world is going to be what I want it to be. You need a course correction, and here's how the course correction is going to happen. So these were always huge events. It was a wake-up call. And at the end of this, I'm going to argue it, it's due again. So please don't sleep through that. Okay, first, uh, we've got these key errors, or the, the key works that we're going to identify, and the key individuals. The first one, of course, of the key works of God was creation. So we're going to identify by a few words what was the key work. And then we'll identify who was the key individual, one, two, or three in a couple cases, the key individuals whom God used to bring about a key work. And all of this picture is designed to help us, to remind us of whose world it is. And when we think we're smart enough to run the world apart from God, he issues a wake-up call. And I'm telling you, we're going to see this. And of course, who's the name that we would tie with creation? Who was the person that would be identified with the work of creation? Adam, of course. So then, we're going to move forward a few years, and we're going to start the 500-year picture with this particular work, judgment, the flood. Why did the flood happen? Because God looked down and said what? Things are only evil continually. Genesis 9, 6. So bad, God said, I'm starting over. Now that was a pretty big work. That was an attention getter. So we go from how many people? Do you know I actually read mathematical things intrigued me. And I read one time, if you take the normal population, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, growth rate, from creation to the flood, 2500 BC, considering how long the lives were and having babies when they were in their 100 or 200 or 300 year olds, the population could have been a trillion people. We find that almost shocking. Mathematically, it works out perfectly fine. I don't know if it was that many. But if it was a few million or a few billion, there's a lot of people. How many people survived? Eight. On the boat, eight people. Where are the rest of them? Outside the boat, flailing around in the water. Hysteria. Just picture that. What God had done, and this was God that did this, judgment. So you have, looking out the boat, you're seeing people in the water, old people, pregnant women, kids, babies. This is a pretty ugly picture, but it's the reality of what happens when people decide they don't need God and judgment has to come. And so this is a true story, it's not a fable. It bothers me sometimes when we think about these great events of the past, biblical stories, and they're treated simply as a Sunday school story for kids. 
you know, the nice scene of Noah's Ark, two of each kind on the boat, looks so nice. It wasn't nice. It was an extraordinarily awful time that humanity had to be wiped out and God starts over with eight people. Of course, who's the key person at this time frame? No, exactly. So uh, all the way through, we're gonna identify the name of a key era and a few individuals, and uh, you'll know most of them. There's a couple you probably don't know of, so you're gonna learn that today in this class. Next, at, um, next time frame is uh, 2000. What happened 2000? Creation of Israel. That's when God decided to create a nation of his people. So what name do we identify with that? Abraham. Abraham and uh, Isaac and Jacob, they're known as the patriarchs. So we identify three names here associated with uh, this next key work. I mean, I got the, from the flood 500 years, almost to the year, to the call of Abraham. Abraham's just one more person, one more family, one more clan. He's living somewhere. And God shows up and says, come with me. I want you to move. I'm going to start something new. So Abraham and his family and his clan, they all move, long trek, walking, and they go to a land and start over uh, because they're going to be the people of God. So that's a uh, key here. What's next? What happens 500 years later? Well, they've gone down into Egypt, that whole story. And so we have now another era, key era, that we identify as Exodus and law. What does Exodus mean? What's going on there? Get out of Egypt, right? The Exodus from Egypt. So uh, that happened. And then they get to a place where the law is given that God says, here's your marching orders in writing. This is how you are to obey me. This is how you know how you're supposed to live. So what's the person? Who's the person here? Moses, of course. And, uh, and so they leave. Uh, they get the law. Uh, they spend 40 years wandering around in the desert. Uh, why? Because a whole generation had to die off before they were ready to go in and take the promised land. You've probably heard this saying that it took God three days to get Israel out of Egypt, but 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel because they had grown up in a lifestyle and a worldview that was wrong. So they had to die off. It was so ingrained with them that they couldn't be re-educated. They had to die off, a new generation be risen up and, uh, and, and prepared to go in and, and begin the process of taking the new land. So then after 500 years, Lots of things going on uh, in, the, in the age. Uh, and we get to uh, another 500-year period, 1,000. What happens at 1,000? Well, we call it the kingdoms, the age of kingdoms. Because now, for the first time, there is a realm called the kingdom, and there are kings. So who would be the key individuals we would put here? We could say Saul, but that didn't work out too well. That wasn't God's purpose or plan. God had someone else in mind, David and his son. So we identified David and Solomon as the key people associated with that era. 500 years later, the kingdoms had been going on, but they began to have problems. A couple hundred years into the kingdom world, and the kingdoms split. How do we identify them? How does the Bible identify the split? We have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. 
10 nations, two nations, and uh, they're fighting with one another. And then Judah, the southern kingdom, along with Benjamin, uh, known as the southern kingdom, referenced by Judah, Jerusalem, uh, things begin to go bad again. Fell away from the law, weren't obeying God, all kinds of practices that were not good, interacting with uh, pagan people. And once again, God said, I've had enough. This is just awful what the people were doing. I mean, really awful stuff. And so this time, I mean, God promised there would not be another flood. That, that isn't the way he would deal with people. But he did have a way of dealing with what was going on then. We call it the exile. So this is the era of the rebuilding because they had been jettisoned. The people were literally jettisoned to a new land, a pagan land, Babylon. And they were there somewhere between 100 and 125 years maybe. There were three waves of deportation. You must know that story. And three waves of coming back and, uh, and started over. So God caused them to lose their land. I mean, there were some that stayed behind, but it's estimated, depending upon who you read, somewhere between 100,000 and a million people fled Jerusalem, Judah, and were exiled into Babylon. And they had life there for a generation or two. And then God decides time is up and it's time to go back. So he raises up a pagan king. Remember his name? Cyrus. Last verse in 2 Chronicles identifies Cyrus, who Cyrus as a pagan king says, you can read it in scripture, he says, the Lord spoke to me. And the Lord did speak to Cyrus. Now, whether or not that means he was a believer, that just doesn't say that. But God used Cyrus to tell Israel, go home. Going to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the land, and once again be my people. So the rebuilding, we identify three names with the rebuilding era. People are going back, and they're going to start the process of rebuilding. So can you come up with some of the three names? Nehemiah, Ezra, and Zerubbabel was earlier. He came with one of the first waves. But at the same time, there was Nehemiah, Ezra, and Malachi was the three individuals that were there with the rebuilding process. There's a really interesting point about that, which I'll, I'll say in, in just a moment. But you might imagine that I named Nehemiah Institute after that Nehemiah. Because when I became a Christian, as I said this morning, at age 33, out of a background where the Bible was not in my life in any way, and so immediately started reading scriptures, and uh, come across the book of Nehemiah, and it stopped me in my tracks. And there were some things going on by that time about my sense of, you know, uh, what it meant to be a Christian, a Christian land. And in the book of Nehemiah, I thought I saw a picture of America, a people that had the favor of God, that had a new land, started out well, started to go bad, and eventually had to be exiled. Now, we are not exiled geographically, but we are certainly exiled ideologically because in the public square, we have a different worldview. In fact, I argue even in our Christian institutions, we are embracing a different worldview. That's, that's the big problem that we have today. So uh, Nehemiah, Malachi, and Ezra. Very interesting thing about those three individuals because they represent three different 
offices. Ezra was what? A priest, the high priest. He was the one who would, you know, go into the temple, the Holy of Holies. He was the one who led in, in the reform of their rituals, of their the rites, their ceremonies, and whatnot. Uh, Malachi was the prophet of the day. You know, there's three what we call major prophets and then 12 minor prophets. Do you know why they're called major and minor? Not because of how important they were. Nothing to do except for the length of their book. So you got Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. And then you got the 12 smaller books that we call the minor prophets. Well, Malachi was one of those. And uh, I also like to point out here that uh, the last book in the Old Testament, in your Bible it says what? Malachi. That's not the last book written in the Old Testament. It's just the last order that it appears in our Bibles. The last book written was Nehemiah. Well, when I learned that, I thought that's very interesting. For this reason, think about this. The people of God had been exiled for quite some time, brought back to rebuild the holy city. Now, God knew, of course, that he was not going to speak to his people again for 400 plus years. There was no more prophets. There's no more Old Testament writings. There's no more appearances. No more angels showing up. So you can imagine if God sent them back for 400 years, he knows he's not going to show up and give any new instructions. So wouldn't he put the most important things in writing to say, here's the way you need to live? So the book of Nehemiah is the last word of God before the Messiah arrives. That's what makes Nehemiah a very important book. And Ezra, right before it in our Bibles, very complimentary. At one point, they were the same. But we have them as Ezra and Nehemiah. So anyway, we list these three names, Ezra, Malachi, Nehemiah. And uh, it's also fascinating, those, those three offices, I started to say, Ezra the priest, Malachi the prophet, and Nehemiah is representing the king. He's there at the king's pleasure. So he's called the governor, but he has the office of king, if you would, in that land as an extension from, uh, at that time, uh, uh, where King Cyrus was rule over it. Well, I find that fascinating because those three offices, priest, prophet, and king, appear where else? In the New Testament. And who serves as priest, prophet, and king in the New Testament? Jesus. So here we have Jesus, our Messiah, our Lord, as filling those three offices. So the book of Nehemiah, with these three individuals, is a picture, if you would, of Christ in the Old Testament, 400 years before. I just find that very interesting, that God presented that picture, gives them the message about how they are to rebuild and to live out life, and that's the way it's going to be for 400 years. Oh, yeah, the next 500 years, of course, brings us to what I'll call zero. Uh, and uh, the key work there is the cross. Uh, but the key individual, who did God primarily use as an individual for instructing his people then? 
Paul, right, the Apostle Paul. He's the most significant writer in the New Testament, so we identify him as God's key person at this time. So then we start what we call the New Testament era. Uh, time changed, the new king, the, the king. And uh, we come to an age that we call Christendom. You may not know that word per se. Christendom is different than Christianity in this sense. Christianity is the word we use to identify our religion. Christianity is our religion. Christendom is more than that. Christendom is how our religion is to shape a culture. It's the governing of affairs using the Christian religion principles. So Christendom, another word we similarly would be government. It's the government of the land. Here's how you're supposed to live as a people in the land, in all the different aspects of life. So Christendom is that word that theologians have used uh, that defines that. And in particular, one guy, uh, you may not know this, but you know the name, a person who's still today known as the most significant church father, identified as such by both Catholics and Protestants alike. Care to guess who that is? Augustine, except, I always do this. I'm, I'm just be silly about this, but I always correct the pronunciation. And I, I, I knew a theologian, he used to, he was a professor, and he would get so mad at his students, he would say, St. Augustine is in Florida. St. Augustine is in heaven. So that's how I supposed to say it, St. Augustine. That was the way it was pronounced. So St. Augustine, he was God's purpose. And he wrote a lot of good things. His key work is another fat book. This is the third fat book I'm telling you about. Uh, called The City of God. Slash City of Man. Really important book. Because St. Augustine was used to define, with the fall of Rome going on about that time, how does the world look if it's a city of God versus a city of man where there is no God. You get two different worlds, as we well know. And we're seeing that today. We're seeing the transition into a city of man where we don't use the Bible to define how life is supposed to work. The whole bathroom nonsense is a city of man idea. That somehow that's supposed to be the good life. It's just, you know, pure evil, but that's what's happening. So city of God slash city of man, this was... Uh, St. Augustine's key work, another 700-page book. It's hard to read those books. I'm telling you, if you've never read it, you've got to have a dictionary beside you because they use big words, words we don't have. Uh, but you should have that book too. So that was the first 500-year period of what we call the New Testament era. Then we get to the next one, which uh, is a 1,000-year period. I'm going to rush through these kind of quickly here. It's called the Age of Light. A thousand year period, we're at 1000 AD, uh, I mean, and uh, now we have a name that you may not know of, I'll just give it to you, St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Clairvaux was a city in France, uh, it meant Valley of Light, that was the name of Clairvaux, and uh, he was the evangelical of the day. He was the guy who understood the good news, and he was a thorn in the side of at least three popes of trying to keep the good news, the story of salvation, accurately. But, of course, it was all messed up, and uh, he was not well-liked, but he was the guy. Uh, you can find books about him, too. Then we get to the next 500-year uh, period, and we come to what we call Reformation, 
or more accurately, the Protestant Reformation. And uh, once again, there was a course correction because things had gone bad, gone very bad uh, in the church. There was all kinds of abuses going on. And so a couple of individuals were tapped on the shoulder to bring about the Reformation. Now, you should know these names. Give me a couple names. Luther and Calvin. Those were the two key figures that God raised up to bring about another course correction. So we identify Luther and Calvin. So my point to this, if you know this history, there's lots of other things that went on that were significant. There's lots of other significant names. All the prophets, which I don't have listed here. I'm saying these are the big things that happened every 500 years, and these are the, the key individuals. There are no other key individuals that were used of God to do the work that they did. This was significant. And it is terribly sad that even in our churches, we don't know this story well, because this is the big picture. This is how God reminds us whose world it is. And I say to Christian schools, when I'm out speaking to Christian schools, it applies here as well. I think we should be teaching our junior high students how to draw this chart, exactly as you see on the screen, from scratch with a blank sheet of paper. Know the key times, the key works, and the key people. That's not that much to memorize. And I think students could do this. You could teach them to memorize it, have it as a little quiz, give them a blank sheet of paper, and draw that chart. I think if our youth understood this chart, just understood the works of God, the key players of God, the key time when it happened, it would change their thinking about God and the world and about who we are, for them to know that. Because now we are literally at the next 500-year time frame, 2000 A.D., a few years later. That's the way it was with all of these. It'd be, you know, 10, 20, 30 years off, sometimes right on. So if this trend continues, every 500 years since the flood, something big happens, and God reminds the world whose world it is through some kind of an event. You have to say, if, if, unless, unless God's done with history, I don't think he is. I think we are living at a time when once again God's going to get our attention and remind the world of whose world it is, that he has a plan. So somewhere God is going to identify a key individual or two or three and a key work. And what's different today than all the other 500-year periods is that we have this instantaneous news network worldwide. When God does something this time, the whole world's going to know in the 6 o'clock news. Something big happens. I think, as I alluded to earlier, God is going to get America's attention. I'm telling you, I don't claim to be a prophet. I'm just reading the signs, looking at scripture, and all these things that have happened. <clears throat> God is going to do something to get America's attention. And by extension, the rest of the world. He's going to remind America whose world this is. He's going to bring us to our knees. And how soon? I don't know. He probably has his eye on a fifth grade boy in some classroom somewhere whom God is going to raise up and tap on his shoulder and say, come with me. I have a work for you to do. Something like that is going to happen. 
if this same trend continues, because we are due, not only time-wise, but event-wise. What's going on in the world today, which is so far from what has been happening, what's supposed to have been with the course correction, with the Protestant Reformation, when it's run its course, and now here we are today thinking that a secular <clears throat> idea of life is the right way to go, uh, followed by a socialist idea of life. That's what we're doing. We're flirting with socialism. We just elected someone who really believes socialism is the right way to go. I'm very, very concerned about what's happening and going forward. So why know this amazing story? <clears throat> it is a story of, I think there was, of God's most important work. And I say we dishonor him when we don't know it. If we don't know this, it's like saying, no, it's not important. That's why a lot of people don't like history. They think it's old, it's past. Why worry about that? We shouldn't think that way because this is a whole story <clears throat> of God. Second, it shows that we may be about to become witnesses <clears throat> or participants in the next 500-year event. I really do believe this is going to happen. Maybe not me, my age, kids, grandkids, you're going to see it. <clears throat> You're going to see God remind the world whose world it is. <clears throat> and third, it equips us, this story equips us with the most basic information needed for evangelism of the lost. As evangelical churches, we say this is our job, evangelism of the lost, and it is. We need to have the right story. We need to tell them the story so they understand who this God is the power of this God, the purpose of this God. That's why you need to know this amazing story. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and God's Word has had an impact on your life, as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.